we're grateful that the Lord's gathered us here today, and we continue our series looking at um, Matthew's gospel, and we come to a section now, uh, we'll be in verses 20 through 30, and there's this two-fold reality that's, that's present here. Uh, on the one hand, there are these strong words of judgment, and the second half is probably one of the most famous places or the famous things that Jesus has ever said in his gentle call and invitation to come to him. And one of the, 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 the truths or the, the principles that we can see just in even how this text is laid out, because these things are happening at the same time. These woes and these, these strong pronouncements of judgment are coming at the same time of Jesus giving these strong, gentle, kind words of invitation. So the principle that's at work there is that oftentimes many things in Christianity appear to be counterintuitive at first. And oftentimes, many of the truths of Christianity appear to be counterintuitive at first. He who wishes to save his life must lose it. And the same is true in this, this principle of judgment and rest. So I'm going to read the text to us, and then we'll unpack it under three headings. So Matthew chapter 11 Verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Will you be brought down to Hades? For if the mighty works had been done, that had been done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is God's word for us this morning. Pray with me. Oh, Father, we are grateful. We are grateful for these words in the scriptures to us, this gentle, kind, loving, lowly, peaceful invitation from Jesus for us to come to him. And Father, we also are a bit terrified of these words of judgment that some will be cast down to hell, that it will be more It'll be unbearable for some on the day of judgment. 
So we ask God, we ask God that we would revere you as a holy, sovereign, just, and gracious and merciful God. We pray that both of those realities would be treasured in our hearts. We pray that Jesus Christ would be enamored in our hearts and we would behold him and love him and cherish him. We're grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So three points. The reality of judgment. The need for rest. And how to get it. The reality of judgment. The need for rest. And how to get it. And young people, if you would like to tick off a word, see how many times I say the word rest. And come up after the service. Did you just put your finger up, Gabe? Like one? Are you going to count? Oh. <laughs> Children come up and tell me how many times I said the word rest. Point one, the reality of judgment. These are strong words that Jesus gives us here, starting in verse 20. Matthew says that he began to denounce the cities where his works had been done. And then the words of Jesus are these words, woe to you. Woe to you. These are almost uh, words that are, that are curse-like in nature. It's almost as if he's pronouncing a curse on these cities. He's pronouncing an intense form of judgment upon them. He's saying that they are accountable for their actions. They're accountable for the things that they've done. And then he makes this pretty... Um, Pretty challenging comparison. When he compares these cities of Capernaum or Chorazin or Bethsaida, and he compares them to these these places where we see God's destruction in the Old Testament. And he says it would be better for, 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 for them on that last day than it will be for you. And he says, because if the mighty works that you have seen among you had been done in those places, they would exist today. We're talking about a place where we see the first, well, that's not true. We see an an, an awesome outpouring of God's wrath on this place of Sodom, a place of destruction, a place that was an abomination to the Lord. And Jesus says to these towns, if they had seen what you've seen in these last days, they would still be here today. Because the Lord of the universe The king of the world, the one who holds the cosmos together by the word of his power, has walked among you. He's performed miracles among you. You've touched and seen life itself. And you've utterly rejected him. And the point is that you are accountable. These people are accountable for their actions. He's saying that what Sodom saw and what Capernaum saw are so drastically different. Capernaum held the, the, the source of life itself in its bosom. He says in verse 24, that it would be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Now what was the sin in the land of Sodom? Now first of us, and most, and, and most of us go to one place First and foremost, we see Sodom as a place where sexual sin resided. And it's true. It did. 
And there's a conservative bent in us. The conservative bent in us says, that's right. Sexual ethics is what matters. Sexual ethics is what's wrong with the world today. The problem with Portland today is that there are no sexual ethics. It's like the land of Sodom. But listen to what Ezekiel says. Ezekiel says in chapter 16, verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous eats, but did not aid the poor and the needy. There's a liberal side that likes that, right? That Sodom was destroyed because they weren't generous and kind to the poor. They were destroyed for a lack of hospitality. They were destroyed because they had food. They had provision. They lived at prosperous ease. And they cared nothing about the poor. And the liberal mindset says, yes, that's what's wrong with the world. What's wrong with the world is there isn't enough concern for justice, for equal rights, for equity. But the real reason is both. There's a principle at work there when it comes to the nature of wrath. And that is oftentimes the wrath of God, the anger of God against sin, is something that, that really irks us because oftentimes we want to make a God in our own image. And there's things that God despises And there's things that God hates, and we don't really like that God despises and God hates those kinds of things. So the reality, though, of God's judgment, the reality, though, of God's wrath is something that should be of deep comfort to us, though. Because that irkness inside of us, that unease about things, and then at the same turn, a delight to see that God is wrathful against other things means that he's not like us, which means that we actually have a God that can actually help us. Because if the God of your own thinking only thinks like you do, then he's not actually a God that can actually ever help you. He's not actually a God that can say, come to me, come to me and I will give rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because if he already thinks everything that you already think, if he already only cares about everything that you only care about, then he's actually only a God that's in your own thinking and your own making. And he can't actually confront you. He can't actually help you. He can't actually change your circumstances and bring a certain kind of peace to your life. It's a reality of judgment. Point two, the need for rest. Verse 28 is that famous passage where Jesus calls people to him that are weary and heavy laden, and he'll give them rest. It is a wonderful and beautiful passage that actually just gets at the heart of Christianity. And in fact, that's what many commentators and scholars suggest about this passage, that it it really distills much of what the call of Jesus is. It distills down for us in just a few phrases and a few verses the compassion and the meekness and the rest and peace that he offers and that he brings. I suppose one challenge in looking at a text like this is to ask, well, who's he talking to? Is he he striking at a universal need or is he only talking to a certain group of people? 
Because the answer isn't totally obvious to us, I suppose, because in verse 25, he says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and revealed them to little children. So he's saying that these things have only been revealed to little children. He said that these things have actually been hidden from the wise and the understanding. So is that because there's only a certain class of people that actually need this kind of rest? Is he saying that there's, there's a group of people that are, that are self-sufficient, that can get on on their own, and then there's this other group of people that are weak, and we'll sort of compare them to children, and they're the kind of people that, that need my kind of rest? I don't think so. I think he's saying this is a universal reality. This is something that every human being experiences. And on the same turn, though, he's saying, and many won't deal with it. Many will reject it. Indeed, he says, even to some it has been hidden. So let's unpack some of that. First, what do I mean that it's a universal need? Um, Young people. I suppose this is something that's hard to understand um, at a certain stage in life because there's the ability early in life to think that your discontentedness is just a result of not having everything you want yet. You're not in a relationship yet. You're not in your career yet. You're not in a place of financial stability yet, etc., etc., etc. And the sense of discontentedness is assuaged, is set aside with the future hope of all those things. Marriage, kids, house, job, vacations, etc., etc. And and we may not overtly say it like that. We may not because we don't totally see it, or we may not have the courage to overtly say it like that. But functionally, many of us live this way. We set off the discontentedness in our life with the future hope that things will change. That the thing that we actually want, successful relationships, happy children, financial success, will deal with that sense of discontentedness. And I know this because that's how I live. The Roman poet Horace said, no one lives content. Because as the years go by, and you, 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 you realize that these achievement points, these different status points, still leave the heart yearning and longing for more. Now certainly... The good gifts of God are satisfying. I mean, the joy of my life is my wife, my children, and this church in that very distinct order. (laughs) Amen. But these things, they, they do. They bring me great happiness. They bring me great joy. They bring me contentment in life. But still, 
these great joys and loves are not meant to give my soul rest. My soul is not at rest because of these things. These things have been endowed with a certain kind of responsibility by us to give our souls a kind of rest that they were never meant to be endowed with. I remember this feeling, this lack of rest in a really small example. I had gone to college and I was on the verge of graduating from seminary. And I remember the anticipation of of, of how satisfying it's going to be to graduate seminary, okay? Okay. And, and, and you, you get up there and you cross the stage and they put this weird hood thing on you and they give you the, 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 the folder with your diploma in it and you go and you sit down and you open the folder with a diploma and it's always empty. They never actually give it to you on the day that you graduate. And so you, 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 you finish and you go to the lobby and all your family asks, let me see it, let me see it, let me see it. And you open it up and it's empty. And everyone's like, oh, oh. I thought, did you, I thought you, did you not finish a couple classes or something? Or, <laughs> and then like a week or two later, it shows up in the mail and you open this folder and you pull it out and you're like, eh. you slide it back in and you put it in your drawer. And that's, that's that. It's a small example, I know. But it is something that we all struggle with because things like diplomas and children and jobs and even spouses weren't meant to give your soul rest. A spouse won't give your soul rest. And I'm talking about the best spouses because I know because I have one. And a career won't give your soul rest. Growing your business won't give your soul rest. Adding another crew to your business won't give your soul rest. Working less won't give your soul rest. Finding a companion late in life won't give your soul rest. Fixing the bylaws in this church won't give our souls rest. Find rest my soul in God alone, my rock and my salvation, a fortress strong against my foes, and I will not be shaken. These things were never meant to give your soul rest. We endow such unrealistic expectation on people and circumstances around us. How do you know if you've done that? How do you know if you've put an unrealistic expectation on the people or the circumstances around you? If you've found your soul's rest in them or that situation or that circumstance, how do you know? See what happens to your heart when it's taken away from you. When it's taken away from you, is all of your happiness vanished? All of your contentedness vanished? All of your peace gone? I'm not talking about just sadness over loss or sorrow over loss. I'm talking about utter devastation. If devastation has occurred, if that kind of pain has occurred, We may have endowed unrealistic expectations on the people and circumstances around them and look to them to find our soul's very rest. But Jesus is saying, I am the only one that can give you rest. He says, and he describes this kind of rest. He says, I want to give you a kind of rest. I want you to take my yoke upon you. 
My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now that's interesting. Isn't that interesting way for Jesus to describe what it means to come to him and find the rest that he offers? He says, take my yoke upon you. Doesn't necessarily sound restful at first. A yoke, a yoke is something that uh, was used for an animal. A yoke is something that's laid upon a beast of burden. An ox, a mule, a donkey to carry some kind of load. So a, a yoke isn't necessarily bad, but wakes, what, what makes a yoke burdensome is the load that it carries. And most of the time, any idea of any kind of yoke is pretty repulsive to us. I mean, the Stones knew that 40 years ago, right? I'll never be your beast of burden. Thank you, John. Act like you've never heard that song, you people. But Jesus isn't saying anything radical for the time. Because anytime you wanted to be a disciple of a teacher or a rabbi, you went to live with this person. You went to live with this rabbi and this teacher, and you, you learn from every aspect of your life, of their life, rather. You learn from every aspect of your life. Now, I think for, the, for, for us as, as, as modern people, though, if Jesus would have said, come to me, without the whole yoke thing, we can, we can imagine that. If Jesus simply said, come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls, we can imagine some kind of uh, spiritual experience. We can imagine simply some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of existential thing that would come to us from the outside. But instead, he says, let me dominate every single aspect of your life, and then I will give you rest. That's that counterintuitive thing again. It's running all the way through this passage. He says, let me dominate every aspect of your life. Let me put my yoke on you. Let me talk about every single inch, corner, nook, cranny, back closet, shed aspect of your life. And when you let me do that, you'll find rest. That's a dangerous call. That's something that Piper, John Piper calls the dangerous duty of delight. The dangerous duty of delight. Because it means forsaking everything else and looking to trust Jesus alone. And that's so hard and repulsive to us because it is not the message of our culture. The message of our culture is eschew any kind of yoke. The path to human flourishing is to get rid of all yokes. No one should be able to tell you anything to do. You should be able to do what you want to do. You should follow your heart and feel how you want to feel. And act how you want to act. And only the people that reach that kind of pinnacle of yoke off throwingness find true happiness in life. But look what Jesus says. There's a way. Let me rather ask this as a question. Where does the emphasis come in this sentence? Because I think we hear it like this. Take my yoke upon you. Rather than saying, take my yoke upon you. Jesus is saying, take my yoke upon you. The implication being is that there always is a yoke. Jesus isn't saying that the options are no yoke or yoke. Jesus is saying, which one do you want? 
He's talking about people that are already burdened. And he's saying, take off this burden and instead take my yoke upon you. But you see, the challenge is the option of having no yoke is not an option. It's just simply not an option. You got to serve someone. There you go. (laughs) You got to serve someone. You say, how is that possible? All those things that we talked about. You say, I don't serve anyone. I don't, I'm not, I'm not a, nothing is my, my taskmaster. I don't have yokes. Oh, yeah? Live for your career, and your career is your taskmaster. Live for your family, even good things, my friends. You know how many people live with the yoke of their kids on them? They find their success, they find their worth, they find their value in their kids. It's a challenge for us especially as Christian parents, especially as a church that deeply loves and values the gift of children, which is a good and right gift from God, there is a deep danger of turning our children into idols, which means that we find our significance in them. Live for your children, and that's your yoke. So when your children fail you, your life's a disaster. Your life doesn't have worth living anymore. But Jesus is saying... I am the only yoke. I am the only master. I'm the only one that when you fail me, I will forgive you. And when you embrace me, I will give you rest. There's no other yoke on the planet like that. When you fail your business, it doesn't say, I forgive you. When you embrace it, it doesn't say, find your rest and your satisfaction in me. I will give you what you need. There's nothing else on the planet that is like that. So how do we get it? How do we get it? Point three. The first thing I want to suggest to you in how to get it is comes to us in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. The first thing I want you to see is that Jesus is not totally undone by what he's just seen in the surrounding towns. At a time when he could be totally discouraged, these towns that have been his base of ministry, you know, Capernaum thought that they would be lifted up to the heavens because Jesus moved in and around them. And he says, I'm going to cast you down to Hades. It's almost as if this is what one commentator suggested, that, that, the, that the sign, this is a joke, the sign as you walk into Capernaum before Jesus said, Capernaum, that great fishing town in the north. But after the ministry of Jesus, it was, it was Capernaum, that place where Jesus the miracle worker walked around and did his thing. Jesus is not completely undone by what he's seen in the surrounding crowds. Instead, he starts by saying, I thank you, Father. He's not so much thankful that the wise are ignorant, but he's thankful that the little ones know. He's thankful that the little ones know. And the Father's sovereignty is a source of encouragement to Jesus that somehow 
somewhere behind and above this discouraging world stands a poised father. A father who is completely in control and totally not frustrated. And by looking up to this father, Jesus can even feel grateful that the events have fallen the way that they have. Jesus is able to believe that human beings are not the final arbiter of history. Because we know that human responsibility is an embittering reality. But the great hope and the great truth that Jesus experiences here is for this church today. We can easily be affected by the circumstances that we find ourselves in. The setbacks, the pains, the mistakes. And friends, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of place that I find myself in right now. Coming in and out of depression, coming in and out of being downcast, feeling at verge on the times of despondency. And I'm sure many of you feel the same way too. Asking the same question, why are we in this place? It seemed like everything was just going on eight cylinders. But how desperately we need to see and have the hope that Jesus himself has when he looks on at Capernaum and he says, I thank you, Father. I thank you that you do save some. I thank you that you are the sovereign one over everything. And brothers and sisters, we need to, I need to continue to look to the sovereign God if we're ever going to have any kind of poise in our ministry. An excessive attention to our shortcomings and failures would drive us into that slew of despondency, depression, and the temptation to give up. If we have an insufficient appreciation of the happy fact of the Father's sovereignty, we will grow weary, we will grow hopeless, and we will want to throw in the towel. But we do have a God whose plans always come to pass without alteration or adjustment. There is no plan B with our king. Even in setbacks, he's on the throne. Even in our failures, he's on the throne. Even in our difficult times, he's on the throne. How long did it take Abraham and Sarah to see it? How long did it take Joseph to see it? How long did it take Hannah to see it? How long did it take Ruth and Naomi to see it? How long did it take Daniel to see it? How long did it take John the Baptist to see it? Friends, there are a million things going on in your life right now. There are a million things that are going on in this church right now. And you know what? We know about two or three of them. God is enacting his sovereign purposes in a million ways that we simply don't know about. And Jesus saw that. Jesus was able to say, I thank you, Father, for this was your gracious will. 
He can look on devastating circumstances and say that it's the Father's gracious will. I'm so thankful the way that Brian introduced that scripture reading today. That we can look at God as the clockmaker. We can look at him as the man scientist that, sure, he's sovereign, but is he gracious? Is he good? Does he mean all things to come to pass for the good of his people? Because I can believe, sure, if he's God, then he's sovereign. He made it. But does he mean all things for our good? Is he accomplishing a good, and Jesus even says, gracious will in our lives and in this church? And the answer is yes, he is. He's doing a million things in your life right now. He's doing a million things in this church right now, and we don't even know what he's doing. But we know that he's good. And maybe we'll see it a couple years down the road. Maybe we'll see it a couple weeks, a couple months. Maybe we'll see it in 20 years, and maybe we won't see it until we're on the other side of the cloud. Maybe we just won't. I know there's things that we won't see till we're on the other side. We just won't know. We'll look back. We'll embrace Jesus. We'll embrace him for everything that he is. And we'll see all of human history as it folds out. And we'll say, that is amazingly beautiful and perfect. I didn't see it in the moment. All I saw was my failures, their failures. I saw people being discouraged. I saw depression. I saw despondency. I saw the temptation to give up, to throw in the towel, to do something different. But you are accomplishing your sovereign, perfect will. You know, one thing, a few years back, we were in a a place where I was at odds with a a brother, uh, my friend, Daniel. And I saw no path forward. In the last couple months, We have gotten together and had more honest, frank, reconciling conversations that I even dared would have been possible three years ago. We were able to sit down just a couple days ago and talk about everything that each other had done to each other in the years early on in this church. And do so with tears, with laughter, with forgiveness, with sorrow, with joy, with appreciation for one another. And I would have never, ever, ever, ever thought that was possible a couple years ago. Amen. Jesus welcomes us into a rest for our souls. But he gives us, and I'll move towards our close here. He gives to us a couple descriptors of how that looks because this is the point where we're learning how to get it so the first way to how to get it is to see the sovereign plan of God but the second way to get it is that Jesus says that we must become like a child and this isn't the first time that Jesus talks this way or it's not the only time I should say maybe it's the first time in Matthew's gospel it's not the only time that Jesus talks this way about the nature of the kingdom he'll say so later in Matthew chapter 18 that unless you become like a child that's what Jesus says What in the world does he mean by that? How do you become like a child? Well, I've got a few of them, so let me give you a few thoughts. I've been thinking about this this week. First, kids know that they're helpless, and they don't mind it. Kids know that they're helpless, and they don't care (laughs) that they're helpless. Think about a child for a moment and all the things that they ask for all day long. I need a drink. I'm hungry. There's poo in my pants. I need to pee. 
etc., 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 in the most inopportune of times. How many times have you been driving? You told the kids, hey, we're leaving here in a minute. Go to the bathroom. You get on the freeway. You start heading your destination. You hit that cruise control. Dad, I got to pee. And you're... Or calling from downstairs. You put the kids to bed. You've had a long day. You're just sitting down with your wife. And someone says, I need water. And you're like, you know where the bathroom is? Do you need me to get you a cup? Do you want a hose? I don't know. What do you? I need to go to the bathroom. Go ahead. (laughs) Feel free. Or that nursery tag that comes up, right? It's like. I'm sitting in the middle. I got, I got 40 minutes where I can sit under the word of God once a week. And can't you hold your pee for just a few extra minutes? But think about it for a moment, parents. And think about it later today when it happens. Yes, on some level, it's selfish and it needs to be. And we need to teach them. But also think for a moment of the bliss of a child. They need you and they don't mind that they need you. They need you, and they fully embrace the fact that they need you. They don't mind being cared for. They don't mind interrupting you. They don't mind saying, I need this. And that's the way Jesus is. He doesn't mind being interrupted in prayer. He doesn't mind us coming to him. He loves it. He delights it. He longs for it. He wants us to be dependent on him. He wants us to know that we're needy and to not care. He wants us to know that we're needy and to rest in him, to put his yoke on us and to rest in him and to find our soul's rest in him. And this is nothing new. This is nothing new in the scriptures. Isaiah tells us, he says this, but the one, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isaiah says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So he says, I, go, I, I live in two places. I live in realms of glory. I live where, where, where myriads and myriads of angels are constantly shouting and proclaiming my holiness, my worth for all eternity. And I dwell with the lowly and contrite in spirit. That's the two places he gives us. He doesn't, in this whole middle expanse of everything else, the Lord isn't there. He doesn't come to the proud. These things have not been revealed to those that are wise. They're ignorant. They're self-sufficient. They don't want to be needy. They want to be those that make a name for themselves, that pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. But Jesus is saying, those that come like children, that acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy of their own soul, of their own life, are the ones that will find my rest. That is the counterintuitive nature of Christianity. But two children. It's just the other, a little bit different take on it. They know that they're deeply loved. They know that they're deeply loved. They know that when you care for them, when you're, when, you're, when you're changing their diaper, when you're buying them clothes, whatever it is, they know that they're deeply cared for and loved by you. They know. They wouldn't ask. They wouldn't ask all these things that they didn't know that they had a loving mother or father, a parent who actually would care for them. They just intuitively and instinctively know that you love them. 
And too many of us can come to a place where we can believe on some maybe cognitive, maybe even spiritual level that, that we're forgiven. But it's so challenging us for, to believe that Jesus Christ actually loves us. He actually loves you. You're not just forgiven. He's not just, he's not just the, the kind of stern father who says, okay, fine, you're forgiven, now go. He's not like that. He deeply loves you and cares for you. So how do we get there? How do we see the real Jesus? Here's one way, and I'll close with this. See Jesus Christ going to the cross and compare that to the ways that other Christian martyrs have marched to their martyrdom and marched to their death. We've said this before, but you know the story of Latimer and Ridley who were burned at the stake for their faith. And one, as the flames were rising, said to the other, play the man. Today we light a fire in England that will never go out. Such poise, such distinguished character, such courage in the face of tragedy. And we know that many other Christian martyrs have died this way. Early Christians, as they were being thrown to lions, said, do your bidding. My sovereign God will accomplish his purposes. But look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in the garden. It says that he's sweating and Strips of blood are actually coming out of his pores and falling to the ground. He's in utter agony. The thought of marching to the cross has got him in, in a place where he's quite literally breaking apart. A state of complete restlessness. The total absence of peace. There is no rest for his soul. Because he's about to experience cosmic wrath. He's about to experience cosmic restlessness. He's about to experience the absence of peace. He's about to experience the full wrath of God against sin. And he's going to do it for your sake. There was nowhere to turn. There was nowhere else for him to turn. He simply had to endure it for our sake so that he could be that gentle and lowly savior who can say to you and say to you this morning, take my yoke upon you and find rest for your souls. When you come to the Father, you will not experience wrath and judgment. You will experience peace. You will experience rest for your souls because I didn't. He was cast out for your sake so that you could be brought in and you could be shown gentle, meek, compassionate grace. You can trust him. He's not like the taskmasters of this world. He has gone to the uttermost for you. He won't abuse you. He won't cast you out. He won't put burdens on you that aren't meant to bring you peace and aren't meant for your greatest good.
And you know that. You know that because he endured the absolute worst for your sake. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for Jesus. And the great love with which he loved us. Help us now to worship you. Help us to embrace you. Help us to come to the Lord's table resting in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the Lord's table where we celebrate what God has done for us in Christ. We celebrate what Jesus has done. We see that he endured infinite restlessness, that cosmic wrath, so that you could be shown rest. You can come up row by row. If you're a Christian and you've, been, you've made your faith public through baptism, then we invite you to partake of this table with us. And as you come and you receive the elements, in faith, entrust yourself to Jesus. In faith, say, I have a weary soul. I am lost without you. And I want to put my heart's rest in trust in you. So you can come up row by row starting in the back, take the elements back, and we'll, we'll partake corporately.